My name is Claire Barnes, and I'm one of the hosts of the Yale University Press podcast. Today, we present a special episode featuring a conversation between John Donatich, director of Yale University Press, and Ned Blackhawk, author of The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. Blackhawk is the Howard R. Lamar Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, where he is the faculty coordinator for the Yale Group for the Study of Native America. This episode was filmed in New Haven, Connecticut, and so if you prefer to watch and listen to this podcast, you can visit our YouTube channel for the full recording. So I'm John Donatich, the director of Yale University Press. I'm really pleased to welcome Ned Blackhawk to this talk to celebrate and introduce his uh, new book, uh, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. And I could start right there, Ned. I mean, th th these are really interesting words, rediscovery and unmaking in, in, in this title and subtitle. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if you have to take something apart to see it right. And, and, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your, your uh, choice of these two words and, 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 and uh, why, why you made that choice. Well, um, thank you for identifying what are two of the central um, initial claims or kind of um, imperatives that the book is trying to do. It's, uh, it's simultaneously trying to say uh, two things. One is that uh, American history has recently been rediscovered by a generation of Native American historians, myself included, um, and I'm deeply indebted to this generation for establishing a lot of the findings that have fundamentally uh, unmade or remade kind of conventional paradigms of American historical analysis. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to keep going and kind of further this um, scholarly momentum. And so um, I'm hopeful that um, we can continue to remake or perhaps unmake some of the unhelpful uh, kind of categories of analysis that have often um, alighted or marginalized this subject from broader understandings of America. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting time to be an historian uh, right now. It seems like every week historians are uh, asserting a new kind of relevance and yet getting sometimes in trouble right. <laughs> for, for asserting a certain kind of relevance. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about you know, how you see the challenges of, of, of being a historian today, you know, the, the opposing tensions of um, presentism and originalism and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and how easy it is to say the wrong thing sometimes. How, how do you approach that? Well, it's funny because um, in my field of Native American history, um, there's often an ambiguity in many readers or audience members' uh, understandings around even the, the term or nomenclature. Um, and in the last generation or so, American Indian has kind of faded from a kind of popular common use, at least in a kind of public discourse, and replaced by a more recent um, category, such as Native American and or Indigenous American. Um, I'm actually um, a product of a generation that mm -hmm. is very comfortable with the term American Indian history or American Indian uh, studies. Um, and so I'm uh, mindful of other people's potential um, concerns around these subjects, but kind of rely upon what seems to me uh, the clearest um, uh, um, kind of forms of um, in, uh, in inquiry around the subject. But you're right, it is kind of a complex moment we're in. Um, 
with seemingly, um, you know, new uh, either developments or debates or reconfigurations occurring pretty readily in American historical kind of practice and study. Um, a series of prominent monuments have come down, uh, public, um, in my field, um, athletic programs such as the um, or sports franchises such as the Washington Redskins or the Cleveland Indians have changed their names and mascots. Um, so it's really a kind of a moment of kind of new consciousness in certain ways in uh, America more broadly. And it's not surprising that there's some resistance or reluctance or misunderstanding about the uh, kind of origins of these kind of initiatives. But generally speaking, and this book is really kind of concerned about this, we're entering into a 21st century world more fully that is much more um, kind of diverse and, um, um, and multicultural in ways that many uh, may not be familiar with. And so part of the uh, introduction and other parts of this book really try to challenge a kind of binary black-white racial paradigm for us understanding American history, um, which is kind of at the heart of some of the recent movements for public activism and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And have you seen a, a change in your students in, in, in approaching all this material? A little bit. Um, I've um, been doing this for a few years now and um, sometimes find student interests um, kind of growing at certain times um, in connection with larger changes in society. Uh, I've been working also uh, with my colleagues on campus here to try to um, expand our Native American student population. Um, and I see within that constituency in particular kind of hunger or kind of a, a real thirst for alternative understandings of American history than those that they receive. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. We published just uh, last fall a book by Joy Harjo, um, yeah. part of the Why I Write uh, lecture series right. that she gave at Wyndham Campbell. And it was all um, on video, uh, on Zoom, her presentation. And there was a wonderful introduction by the students here at Yale. Um, it was a warm welcome in native languages and just a very celebratory moment and so, so rich in the kind of love they had uh, for this work. And I was very, very moved by that. Yeah, I'd encourage anyone who hasn't uh, perhaps uh, learned about or seen um, that introduction to kind of find it. I think it's on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I think, all of the students who were involved in that. And they, um, even during the pandemic, uh, kind of found time and space to um, prepare a really um, beautiful mm -hmm. introduction to Joy's um, both collection and her larger speech that I think she gave uh, yeah. as part of that festival. Here. That's right. Yeah. And we actually published uh, an expanded version of that um, as, as a book. Um, well, that's what, um, and you, um, and as you know, this book um, is also part of a series on Native American studies that um, the press has been doing now for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we're celebrating mm -hmm. a 10 year anniversary mm -hmm. um, here with uh, not just the series, but this larger Native American cultural center that opened in 2013. Mm -hmm. So the, the Henry Rowe Cloud series. Is Correct. Yeah. yeah. And Henry Rowe Cloud and his partner, Elizabeth Bender Cloud, figure pretty prominently in chapter 11 and to a lesser extent 12 in this study. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and as we talk about the book structure and uh, um, content, we'll have opportunity to see how um, a, a really kind of incredible generation of Native American activists uh, emerged in the early 20th century and kind of challenged the ideological and intellectual um, currents of their time. Mm -hmm. And, and not just uh, intellectual and scholarly, but but uh, political and constitutional. I mean, y y this is a really wonderful, sweeping 
uh, history, and and it's the kind of history that I personally love the best, and 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 love to publish the best. And, and it's our sweet spot at the press to have something driven by an argument, but you only you have to learn the context and the history from pre-colonial days to today to understand the argument. So the, the book has a double pleasure. One is to follow a rigorous argument, and then two, to actually um, recontextualize these centuries of, of American history within that argument. So it's a double pleasure to, to read I, it. I appreciate, obviously, that observation. Um, and it was the kind of intent um, to try to do a single volume overview of Native American history that wasn't um, exclusively focused on particular episodes or centuries or um, or regions. Um, and some reviewers or colleagues are calling it a continental history, mm -hmm. which it really, um, which was it wasn't really its intent, but it kind of has become its form. Mm -hmm. um, and as as you know, the book is divided into two halves: part one and part two. One of which is basically to the U.S. Constitution; the other half is since the U.S. Constitution. Um, and so that's a kind of norm, natural kind of um, starting point for or breaking point for certain um, kind of periodizations of American, particularly legal history since uh, mm -hmm. 1787, since the Constitution. Uh, but you can't really understand the subsequent history of the United States outside of its colonial or um, pre-national developments. And so the first half really um, expands upon this generation of scholarship or synthesizes parts of it to really focus and argument around the kind of centrality of indigenous or Native Americans to the course of not just the revolution, but the constitution, the early republic, the antebellum era, throughout the Civil War era, into the 20th century. So it's mm -hmm. it's been a lot, of, um, a lot of fun in certain ways because I've had to um, kind of engage really canonical subjects of, of American historical inquiry, but to do so in a new way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you t tell me a little bit about um, how you approached um, that constitutional history and continental history um, through, you basically say you can't understand any of this without having a Native American context. Can you talk a little bit about how that illuminated um, your understanding of the Constitution before and after? Sure. Um, we're about to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in, um, uh, in how many summers from now? In the uh, 2026 mm -hmm. in July. Um, and um, to say Native Americans have been marginalized or excised or um, put on the periphery of American revolutionary studies um, is um, even that's even an uh, overstatement. I mean, the extent of marginalization that has occurred around these subjects um, is really just shocking. And so um, there's a kind of simultaneous uh, kind of recognition that Native Americans were so central to this period of American history, and they've subsequently been so thoroughly erased from that history in a way that is really, um, I think, uh, disturbing or dis not just disappointing, but perhaps even like more uh, kind of psychologically uncomfortable than many would mm -hmm. perhaps be willing to recognize. Because if you look at the actual texts from this period, um, the Declaration refers to Native Americans as merciless Indian savages. The Constitution, uh, obviously, um, many years thereafter, um, codifies kind of certain uh, kind of legal and kind of philosophical and political ideas into certain kind of enumerated powers that the federal government will have over Indian affairs. Uh, the Treaty uh, Clause becomes the supreme law of the land. Um, 
and all of the first treaties uh, entered into by the Articles and uh, subsequently the other than the Treaty of Paris, which recognizes American independence, and then the first treaties of the uh, independent uh, 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 Articles and then Constitution are all with Indian nations. Mm -hmm. So the reality of the centrality is there in the documents. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the kind of exciting things, back to your kind of particular question about the Constitution, is that if you understand how those words ended up in those documents, you understand this history in a new fundamental way. And there's been a, just a, a small but growing literature on the uh, kind of backcountry conflicts between Native Americans and British settlers in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, which ends with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. Uh, England inherits the New France Empire, French's, uh, France's New World Empire, uh, at least in North America, um, and essentially doubles its territorial size and the stroke of a pen as uh, my colleague at Dartmouth, Colin Calloway has termed it. And so immediately after 1763, these the set British settlers, um, particularly in the backcountry regions, a place like uh, New York State uh, or Colony, uh, um, Pennsylvania and Virginia, anticipate a greater like territorial opportunity now that France, their historic enemy, their Catholic you know, antagonists are gone essentially from the continent. But the French have been defeated, but their Indian allies haven't. And so there's a subsequent war called Pontiac's War in 1763 that erupts right in the aftermath of uh, the uh, British uh, victory that deeply destabilizes interior relations. And so the British show up and try to initially su subjugate militarily these um, insurgent native uh, activists or um, soldiers. Uh, but they're unable to. And so they start diplo diplomatic, economic, and various types of social initiatives to incorporate them into a structure of imperial uh, relations that deeply upsets their British subjects. And so their subjects start complaining that the elites in the seaports, the, the crown itself, um, the soldiers, you know, are all doing things against their own interests. Mm -hmm. And they start um, marauding British trading uh, caravans heading to give Pontiac and his allies uh, diplomatic goods to cement the kind of processes of peace that they anticipate. They begin passing out leaflets to uh, one another to rise up against this um, seemingly despotic uh, monarchical practice. And they even begin shooting and in, in interdicting uh, British uh, forces themselves in, uh, in and around a place called Fort, uh, around uh, what becomes Fort Pitt in Pittsburgh in the backcountry of um, of Western Pennsylvania. That discourse starts using the term frontier for the first time. Mm. And they obviously have a deep-seated hostility towards Indian peoples from their previous war with the French during the Seven Years' War. And so those communities have a, a deep imprint, particularly upon um, Pennsylvania's kind of colonial politics for the next decade. Um, they, ma they begin massacring and um, um, kind of marauding indigenous uh, villages. And so there's a, a, a kind of percolating, not just discourse and set of violent relations, but there's an ideology there. And so that ideology eventually helps form what another colleague has called a common cause across the colonial world. And so while the vast preponderance of the scholarly literature on the revolution has focused on kind of seaport elites in Philadelphia, Boston, to a lesser extent uh, New York, and also Virginia, the gentry, leaders has focused on their ideas and their kind of space within a kind of Atlantic world. It's these interior communities who may have had 
perhaps most radical vision of a new anticipated political future. And so that compromise, um, which is not well known, um, is really um, a percolating and kind of motivating um, force in the kind of origins of the revolution. Um, and then is animates the subsequent structure of American uh, diplomatic and kind yeah. of military practice thereafter and troubles people like Washington when he's in office because he knows that these interior regions are lawless and he has himself property. One of his first acts as a civilian after he retires uh, as commanding uh, general of the Continental Army in December of 1783 is he goes back to his home, realizes his fortunes are in disarray, having essentially had an untended plantation for many years during the war, and essentially tries to um, inspect and kind of establish uh, prosperous rents on his interior uh, land possessions that he's gained over the last few decades in service for uh, essentially the crown and now as a, a commanding general of the U.S. Continental Forces. So he's very aware of these interior spaces and he's very concerned that all these interior peoples will not follow any form of governing practice. And he says things like, if they leave our boundaries and move into Indian territories, they should become subject to their laws. Mm -hmm that they are no longer fit for our kind of jurisdiction. Um, and so he has a vision of treaty making, of jurisdictional boundaries, of kind of political um, bilateral uh, agreements of various kinds with native peoples that would surprise many to hear, but also it's a recognition that he and other founders have of the need for a kind of stronger federalist authority to regulate and govern these interior spaces. So it's no coincidence then when the constitution is written in the summer of 18, 1787 that the federal government becomes the arbiter of Indian affairs. It's in mm -hmm. the Commerce Clause that the federal government will adjudicate uh, foreign relations with um, a commerce between the states and with foreign nations and with the Indian tribes as, as, as the five words are known. And so that power which is lodged in the constitution which all the colonies turned states delegate to the federal government becomes the basis for what we call now federal Indian law and policy. Mm -hmm. So you can't really understand this foundational moment in 1787 mm -hmm. without this backcountry history that, or the back, uh, the backstory history that we just sketched, nor can you understand the subsequent evolution of the federal government's authority over Native Americans um, without kind of understanding a certain form of originalism. Yeah. And so it's a really um, kind of, I think, wonderfully rich history. Yeah. But the sad part for a lot of us is that it's so it's been so um, disregarded that one can take a U.S. history class or a, a, a constitutional law class or American legal history class and never know these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, I've been in some uh, public or published um, debates with uh, uh, some of my colleagues who've written recent surveys of American history that have not focused on these subjects. Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of uh, These Truths by Jill Lepore. Right? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Lepore has a kind of 20th century vision of American history, I would say, and I'm trying to advance as many others are a more 21st century vision. Right. You know, uh, that's a wonderful description of the, of the first half of the book. And I remember being really struck by this sense of, of um, leaders moving through this history with some certain kind of strategic goal in mind, and yet at the same time having to deal with the kind of exigencies of, of daily life and political pushback. And so you're, you're telling us a history kind of, um, you know, foot forward. It's pushing itself along, populated by these great characters, that, uh, people you just described. 
And it was at the end of the book uh, in the 20th century when European colonialists, Hitler among them, uh, were pointing to uh, the American treatment of, of, of Indians um, to almost um, justify what they were doing in Africa and, and, and interior Germany, in fact. Mm -hmm. And it, it was an incredible um, sort of moment of reckoning that um, you know we may be able to tell ourselves lies, but other people see what was going on and are using it for nefarious purposes. There is um, a brief, but as you identify, potentially revelatory section in this in this last chapter of the book, uh, which is essentially um, the history of Native Americans within the Cold War of America. But it starts with the Second World War, um, which in which um, American Indians served in um, higher percentages than other American um, uh, citizens, um, and in which um, American Indian policy got heavily um, redefined from its New Deal kind of Roosevelt administrative kind of priorities uh, to a post-war, more assimilative um, um, driven um, Cold War f philosophy of um, uh, known as termination. Mm. Um, but in the middle of that kind of- French word. Right, it is. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was accompanied by another urbanization program called relocation. Um, and both of these policies were passed by the federal government in the early 1950s um, as an attempt to disaggregate federal uh, commitments to, or disaggregate Indian lands and thereby erode federal treaty commitments to uh, Native Americans and to encourage the assimilization, the assimilation and or Americanization of American Indians. And it was a really dire kind of political period that fostered a lot of activism that is kind of chronicled therein. Uh, but to try to get to that point of um, Native Americans in the Cold War U.S., I try to kind of summarize and um, bring together some findings about the war itself. And I um, have a you know I have a few colleagues here on campus, um, including uh, my colleague Tim Snyder, who've written a great deal about um, obviously um, in his field uh, um, the Holocaust and German expansion into Eastern uh, Europe, um, and in this wonderful book called Black Earth. Uh, that, yeah, um, you may know. And in in Black Earth, um, Tim talks at some length about Hitler's ideology and where he was kind of drawing inspiration from. And it's in Mein Kampf and um, it's in a whole range of speeches, his kind of fascination with America's ability to conquer uh, interior continent and turn it into um, uh, uh, living space or free, um, uh, f f uh, open territories essentially. And he says things that um, like the Volga should be our Mississippi, right. <laughs> you know, and so it's like a chilling recognition. And then, yeah. and then um, 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 another colleague here on campus, a legal historian, uh, I think it's John Whitman, um, hmm. um, wrote a book called Hitler's um, um, Racial Model or Minority Model or something where he analyzes uh, Nazi legal delegations that came to the United States to look at the codification of racial laws in the United States, mm. uh, not just involving African-American segregation, but also American Indians. And so there's uh, two kind of uh, existing studies among a few others that have made these similar claims. And the book as a whole is trying to draw a lot of these studies together into a kind of new kind of portrait. Um, so it's, it's uh, there. I also am in that section, I'm looking at uh, Japanese settler colonialism in Asia. Uh, just very briefly to kind of highlight the, that the ideology of manifest destiny that so dominated American kind of uh, uh, policy throughout the 19th century inspired subsequent forms of what scholars now call settler colonialism and other uh, imperial projects. 
you know, as you're talking about, there's this, um, you know, frightening dream of a, of a homogenous uh, nation building. Um, and yet your book is awe-inspiring in the way that you capture uh, so many different cultures, languages, uh, peoples. What was it like to, to research that kind of incredible diversity? Um, I'm, I'm still kind of um, coming, to, you know, to terms with what the book does and doesn't do. And so I, I am kind of mindful that I was unable to do certain things that I may have initially tried to or um, cover certain geographies, uh, spaces, as well as I would have liked. Um, but I did essentially try to create this single volume synthetic interpretive overview to potentially not just remedy um, existing um, inaccurate or kind of um, um, limited portraits of US history, but uh, potentially reach people who might carry these things forward. And so um, it does have a, a kind of attempt to highlight the heterogeneity and diversity of Native America um, to basically say that there are these numerous distinct histories, but there are all these linkages that create a kind of unified Native American kind of historical experience, if we want to call it that. Mm -hmm. uh, it has, there are colonial themes of commonality. There are 19th century themes, and then there are more 20th century themes. And this, this 20th century theme of fighting the federal government and experiencing urbanization, often uh, um, heavily either subsidized or institutionalized by the federal government, this growing form of activism, uh, both in a regional and kind of national scale, and more recently, this kind of growing form of sovereign self-determination that becomes the nation's policy in the 70s. Um, those are kind of universal uh, subjects within Native American history that bring together a real diversity of uh, communities um, in ways that would be kind of kind of hard for some to perhaps uh, easily recognize because there's very little tying peoples from the Olympic Native peoples from the Olympic Peninsula and Seminole Indians from southeastern Florida. Um, the very, very different geographies, very different histories, very different kind of cultures and obviously languages and other kind of uh, distinctive, um, but there is a commonality. And so the commonality are um, essentially as history and kind of policy and law, activism, philosophies of shared um, commitments. Um, and there's this kind of growing ideology of red power as it's known in the late uh, 60s, early 70s that uh, becomes a kind of unifying um, intellectual project, essentially, not just for Native peoples in the United States, but also in Canada and other parts of the um, particularly Anglophone Commonwealth world. And it's no, it's no coincidence that um, this paradigm of kind of global Southern colonial studies, as it's now known, you know, originates from these kind of Commonwealth mm -hmm. Native studies, Indigenous studies um, kind of connections. Mm -hmm. It's such an enriching um, understanding and illumination of, of American history. You know, it's such a, an eye opener, and um, and also quite moving. I couldn't even think of the word that that it's not agency, it's not resilience, it, it's just a, a lastingness. You know, the, the, of, of 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 Indian peoples throughout um, these centuries of of you know very purposeful uh, termination in, in right. a way and uh, how, how do you understand that, that, that how do you understand that um emotionally uh, when, when you when you look at that that at that dynamic um i do see a lot of um surprising moments of hope in a very dark historical subject matter 
and there it could be a slightly overly maybe at times optimistic narrative of resurgence and self-expression and political sovereign articulations. Uh, one could say that those three themes are pretty evident in the latter stages of his book, but, but those come perhaps at the expense of continued reservation underemployment or you know, various forms of social and um, even kind of housing um, uh, or healthcare uh, limitations. Um, there are still very real challenges and pressing um, asymmetries of health and economic and um, po politics that characterize much of Native America, particularly within reservation communities. So um, I'm trying to um, um, excavate kind of the hidden histories of activism and or intellectual formation or political organization that uh, help, uh, help explain those later themes. Um, but I potentially do so at the um, limit of not sufficiently underscoring the deprivation, essentially, that is so common across much of this history. Um, so maybe that's kind of the answer to it, is that I'm not um, wanting to get too drawn into a familiar story of victimization and or despondency, mm -hmm. but trying to find um, kind of uh, uh, histories of strategic organization mm -hmm. that yielded um, unanticipated and profound outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you have a, a toddler, yes? I do. Yeah. And how do you want that child to understand this legacy as, as, as he as <laughs> growing up? Um, you know, I am not, um, I haven't really thought in those terms yet. <laughs> but um, I you may do. not have time. Right. Um, <laughs> um, I, um, I, my, uh, my daughter is also a, uni uh, a university student at the moment, and uh, she's been studying some of these things. And um, I'm hopeful that... Um, um, all of our children will be given a kind of more kind of accurate um, historical portrait of America in their educational processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we hope that this book is going to be used in, in classrooms uh, going forward and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you about marketing it for years to come. This is a book that will last, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, uh, it, will, it will do beautifully as a, as a new book, but it will, it will last, I think, and it will make, it, make an impact. And if you had to give advice to the teachers uh, who will be using this in, in the next few years, how would you have them present this material? Um, I would... Maybe it's my um, kind of hesitations as a scholar. I would kind of underscore that this is not the whole story, mm -hmm. as we've already discussed, but this mm -hmm. is one way into a larger story. Um, I think it's a, su a sufficient and kind of illuminating way. Um, and I might encourage, as I do often when I work with uh, teachers in various uh, programs, I might encourage much more of a kind of rooted engagement with particular regional or local histories uh, involving native uh, communities, particularly a contemporary native nation. So um, if one is teaching in Connecticut, um, the second chapter does kind of survey the history of British colonialism in the native Northeast. Um, it highlights kind of commonly understood kind of themes of historical development with around the Puritan colonies of New England including their kind of violent campaigns against resident Pequots. Um, but I wouldn't think that would be sufficient coverage. So if one was teaching the subject in the region, one could perhaps use that er early sections to help illuminate the form formative moments of kind of settler Indian relations, but then underscore it with subsequent more focused 
either Mohegan or Pequot or regional um, histories that um, explore um, really surprising themes of, of uh, similar uh, kind of surprisingly um, evident themes uh, in these regional analyses. So that, for example, the, um, the Mashantucket Pequot community has a beautiful uh, museum that has a deep commitment to Pequot history that uh, identifies how uh, the tribe was essentially recognized by the state of Connecticut in the 1800s. And that state recognition, while lost in many accounts or in many uh, political understandings of the region, became the basis for other subsequent federal recognition efforts in the 20th century. So um, it's a kind of remarkable um, history of endurance that um, um, illuminates the larger subject on a kind of local and regional and tribal level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate your, your being careful. It's it's a testimony to your your, your scholarship that that you know you don't overpromise here, but you um, but but you over but you do you deliver the goods. I have to say, you know, I, I just learned so much, and it was such a pleasure to um, to, to read this this wonderful um, critical survey um, and synthetic overview in, in a new light. Well, I appreciate your, um, your you and the press's uh, uh, continued support of this uh, undertaking. And you've had a lot of uh, buzz from from other historians and people working in the field, um, and including uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, who gave you a great blur. How, how do you um, hope the community will will, um, will accept and celebrate the book? Um, well, I've I've been kind of uh, really appreciative of the reviews and recognitions that have <clears throat> kind of started to come in, and um, I'm. Um, I'm particularly um, appreciative of the, uh, from those who have written works and particularly synthetic works that um, have these type of difficult challenges to them. And so um, despite its limitations, um, I think there is a, you know, real urgency and need to have kind of uh, interpretive comprehensions of various kinds. And so one of the themes of the second half of this book is the kind of legal doctrine of federal Indian affairs and the growing power of what is known as plenary power by the Congress over Indian affairs, which is not the original vision of the founders, uh, but came in in the aftermath of Reconstruction when Congress started doing lots of stuff to remake American society. Um, and so um, it does that um, as part of one of its efforts um, in a way that wouldn't satisfy, you know, many perhaps lawyers or you know some legal historians, uh, uh, but could reach into a kind of a broader, um, either undergraduate or even potential high school or kind of broader uh, public um, mm -hmm. understanding. So uh, Dunbar Ortiz, um, you know, has written this type of interpretive overview um, in Indigenous Peoples' History of the United States. Um, she uses more of a kind of settler colonial paradigm uh, than I do, um, um, but her you know, her response was really quite um, uh, wonderful on the night for me. Um, and I really, um, someone like Colin Calloway at Dartmouth has written, you know, so many books in my field. Um, and so I think he really um, um, recognized the, also the need for this type of uh, comprehensiveness um, and a series of um, other uh, scholars like uh, Brenda Child at the University of Minnesota, um, mm -hmm. um, offered uh, some really nice uh, kind of responses. So I'm really um, kind of extremely um, pleased at the moment. Um, I'm not quite sure what um, other kind of responses await, but uh, 
look forward we'll to see. seeing, we'll <laughs> seeing what they will be. Exactly. You, you know, you talked about um, the, the the plenary power and um, and the kind of activism that is that is currently at play, and fascinating to, to kind of see a, a kind of alternative power politic, you know, uh, organize itself. Mm -hmm. What do you, do you think that's the model going forward? Or do you think, um, uh, how will the relationship change be between uh, Native Americans and uh, Indians and, and uh, the U.S. government? You know, it's a really interesting um, subject because part of the reason so many U.S. historians have been unable to successfully recognize this field and incorporate it into the kind of ca canon of American historical formation is because its political um, dimensions don't conform to conventional stories of individual rights and or minority struggles for the expansion of those rights. The Native Americans are not, um, while mentioned in the Constitution three times, actually, include, mm -hmm. if you include the 14th Amendment, um, while mentioned in the Constitution three times, Native Americans are not essentially fighting for or have not historically been fighting for the same rights as other Americans. Um, the right to vote, free speech, you know, freedom of uh, press, or you know, with the kind of conventional um, understandings of what constitutes American citizenry and or subjecthood. And so why we have been unable as a kind of field to bring Native American history sufficiently into the totality of American, particularly political, if not legal history, is because Native American political history sits outside of that normative understanding of citizenry, sub, um, American subjecthood, and the struggle to obtain it, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of a struggle of freedom, as Eric Foner and many others would call it. Native American political history is not a study of unfreedom, even though the federal dominion over Indian affairs has been unjust, subordinating, perhaps exterminationist, according to some scholars. Um, but the federal dominion over Indian affairs came out of, and as we were discussing, an initial form of bilateral recognition that treaties helped establish. Those bilateral recognitions kind of fell apart, in part because American citizens and leaders like Andrew Jackson didn't want to follow Supreme Court rulings like Worcester v. Georgia in 1832, which is in the book. Um, and so if the federal government won't follow its own laws, these things don't... Um, uh, resemble their intent. But over time, it has been Native Americans and their allies who have helped remind the federal government through legal advocacy, activism, political um, tax, and other kind of forms of advocacy. It's been Native Americans who've essentially not just reminded, but re helped rearticulate, but have brought the federal government back into a domain of bilateral, not quite symmetrical, but bilateral, it's called the trust doctrine, but a, a bilateral form of political um, engagement that is at the heart of Native American sovereignty. And so while um, it's a long answer to your question, mm, fascinating. but the reason um, uh, plenary power, the doctrine of plenary power is so kind of threatening to Native American communities is that after Reconstruction, when Congress essentially stopped making treaties in 1871, and began passing laws that were unconstitutional, essentially. And the, the native communities have spent much of the last century or and a half almost trying to convince the federal government that it broke its own laws. And so 
uh, the seizure of the Lakota Great Sioux Reservation after 1868, when the Treaty of Fort Laramie established this massive reservation in South Dakota um, with art articles that gave tremendous recognition of Lakota authority, both within and outside the reservation. Um, that um, Congress will pass an act in 1871 called the Lakota Act um, that dis begins, or 18, I think it's 1877, uh, begins dismantling uh, that, um, that, that agreement, essentially. Um, as Congress does, or as the state of Oklahoma's admission to the U.S. Um, Union does, uh, it, it is at, at odds with the treaty, the Medicine Lodge Treaty of um, 1867 that the Comanche have entered into. So these very large indigenous powers have made treaties with the federal government that federal government divisions, Congress or state leaders essentially are, are not fulfilling. Mm. Within those treaties are certain provisions that a certain number of native peoples have to agree by voting to accept subsequent amendments of the treaty. So when those people don't vote or some kind of shoddy elections are run, um, it becomes an illegal taking by the U.S. Constitution's um, interpreted by the by Supreme Court interpretations of the Constitution's um, authority in these areas. And so it, it may those illegal takings may not get um, essentially addressed or even um, determined until the late 20th century when the federal government establishes something called the Indian Claims Commission. Uh, but they draw upon this kind of 19th century history of federal um, or congressional authority um, abuses, essentially. And so Indian communities are aware that their futures in many ways are potentially constrained by congressional potential um, actions that might undermine that kind of bilateral sovereign-to-sovereign uh, -sovereign relationship. And now more recently by kind of a, a U.S. Supreme Court that um, has largely been trained outside of the field of Indian affairs, other than Gor uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, by a Supreme Court that is not as supportive of these doctrines as its prior iterations. Mm -hmm. um, the Rehnquist Court and now the Roberts Court have been struggling to uphold certain doctrinal commitments that the Warren Court particularly had made in the um, Cold War era. When the doctrine of self-determination came into kind of full congressional statutory form and numerous court rulings held that in fact, treaty rights and membership criteria and sovereign authority essentially resided with the tribes, not other entities. So once, so it's a real, obviously a very complex um, subject, but uh, it's always gonna be an uncertain future for Native American communities given these uh, kind of uh, congressional powers. But since the you know, 80s and thereafter, uh, tribes have become really astute at navigating uh, Congress and um, working often in under-recognized ways to get provisions into congressional bills, to have lobbying um, f powers that people don't fully um, maybe recognize, and to try to win outside of a litigating court system that it can be also often very costly as well as um, uncertain. Mm -hmm. I think you know, it's the kind of answer that um, really kind of demonstrates the um, uh, the thoroughness of, 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 of the book and, and, and the kind of philosophical understanding of what it is that makes a sovereignty have integrity and, and, and uh, when it, you know, uh, hurts itself, uh, well, <laughs> legitimacy. And, you know, the, the second part of the book is called Struggles for Sovereignty. And the intention behind that was not just to highlight Native American struggles for sovereignty, 
but broader U.S. struggles for sovereignty. Because the United States, the sovereignty of the United States is not a predetermined given. It's, it's been historically determined and developed and expanded, particularly through the rise of uh, an administrative state in the aftermath of the Civil War that gave the federal government incredible new uh, authorities and resources and delegated the powers. Mm -hmm. um, we shouldn't take that development for granted. Mm -hmm. And we should kind of come to realize that Native American sovereignty sitting um, under the umbrella of federal sovereignty, both of those into, so, you know, if we can talk um, universally, Native American sovereignties and U.S. federal sovereignty are delicate undertakings that can potentially be um, um, misdirected or um, imperiled. And they have both informed one another. And so while it's really easy to see how the federal government has shaped Native American sovereign developments, it's less apparent how Native Americans have shaped federal sovereign developments, but that's part of the theme of the 19th century studies here is to show how the rise of the federal government, particularly in the American West, was in many ways organized around or kind of um, emerged out of its Indian policy practices, mm -hmm. land acquisition through treaties, the establishment of forts um, and treaty agencies, the delegation of uh, annuities through treaty um, the, event, the creation of railroads often linking reservations. You know, there's a whole infrastructure of governance, essentially, that the federal government initiates in Western North America um, in places that um, very few white settlers um, um, would see for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So asserting that authority um, because of what they saw as a problem there. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's a wonderful... Um, you know, illumination on, on, on the integrity of sovereignty and how you hold uh, American history accountable to it. That, that I think is one of the great uh, um, uh, attributes of the book. Thank uh, you. So the, just you, you struggle to read it because it, um, uh, it, it's, it's so hypocritical and painful um, and yet at the same time so important to understand. And I think with that, I want to thank you for writing it and, and giving us a chance to publish it. So. Well, it's been my um, pleasure to work on it and to uh, talk with you uh, today. Thank you. On April 25th, 2023, the rediscovery of America, Native peoples, and the unmaking of U.S. history by Ned Blackhawk will be available wherever books are sold. You can visit us online at yalebooks.com to pre-order this book and learn more about all of our books. Thanks so much for listening.